This is Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shand. This week, a twist in the tale of the black bone found at Umina in 2020. Look, more recently, a um, another member of the police force did come through that he'd come across an old newspaper article, something from Trove. And at the Academy, we meet a detective turned lecturer, giving our recruits a taste of the street. I know what we're trying to get out of it. And I think it's beneficial for police officers because it actually teaches them to think critically. This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Police Bank is run by members for its members. That means they'll do more than any other bank to support you and those you care about. As there are no external shareholders, profits are returned to members in the form of competitive interest rates, products and services, along with many of the additional discounts and benefits. What's more, if you're on the New South Wales Police Force payroll, we'll even send you your pay a day earlier than scheduled. One of the many reasons to bank with Police Bank. In episode two, we brought you news on the Lost at Sea Blackbone mystery. The investigation had achieved a breakthrough a possible match to the 1940 drowning of a 14-year-old boy, Donald Montgomery, and his father, Sam. The blackened jawbone found on Umata Beach in 2020 is a very strong contender to be Donald's, and a result from DNA testing is expected soon. However, this story has provided another twist. Another teenage boy lost six years earlier in the same area has provided the investigation with a plan B. My colleague, Sergeant Dr. Donna Bruce, has been following up on the new information. Hello, I'm Sergeant Donna Bruce from the New South Wales Police. I work in the film and TV unit. I've been a member of the police force for 33 years and 10 years with film and television. When last we spoke, some great work's been done on this case from a number of people. And we got to the stage in the last episode where we had uh, Donald Maxwell Montgomery was our candidate. He is the right age. It's the right location. Everything seems to fit. And we kind of thought, okay, well, it's just a question of now getting the, the, the living relatives, the buccal swabs, and matching that to the DNA in the jawbone. But you asked me back then, what if it's not Donald? What's our plan B? And I just shrank with horror at that, at that thought, but said to you, well, you just keep going. This is what the police do. You just don't stop. You keep going. And you have a plan B for us as sort of slightly frustrating in a way, but you do have a plan B for us if, if Donald Maxwell Montgomery is not our young lad. Well, yeah, that's right, Adam. And I was pretty excited to ring you about that a few days ago. And because you and I have been in, on this journey now for nearly three years following this investigation, I think we are, um, look, we're, we're really excited and, and hopefully we will bring it to a conclusion that it is Donald. But look, more recently, a um, another member of the police force did come through to me that he'd come across an old newspaper article, something from Trove, where he had found that back in 1934, 13-year-old Roy Inman was swimming with his sister in the uh, same river at Woi Woi and um, there had been a number of shark sightings in the area during that time and his mother had become aware of it 
and um, she called off the balcony to um, to her children and told them to get out of the water. There'd been some shark sightings, and I'm sure you've read that newspaper report, Adam, but um, Roy says to his mother, calls out and says, watch me do one more dive, Mum, just one more dive. And as he dives off the wharf, a um, something swims by his sister in the water, which um, gashes her leg and... Roy jumps into the water into the mouth of a shark and he's never seen again. Dead right. And disappears under the water. The last sighting, according to the newspaper accounts, is his head comes up out of the water briefly and then's never seen again, which I think is important for its potential as a candidate for this jawbone because there's no predation, there's no teeth marks or anything on the jawbone. And if that's the way he was carried away, then that's that's a possibility. And it leaves us with this tantalising, frustrating situation where there's two 50-50s? Well, potentially, yes. And and I think, look, what we've learnt in this investigation over the last three years is the DNA possibility of the FIG testing, which is now available to us and and what we can do and finding relatives through Ancestry.com, which we were able to find the Montgomery family and now um, we will certainly be able to find with the Inman family and then match them up with some records that we might have on our police system and then potentially going to state archives as we did with um, Donald's story and pull out some old coronial files that would relate to that. So look, I, I guess where we're at is if we don't get a match with Donald, then we'll know what to do straight away and there certainly won't we won't have the delays that we've had with Donald. We'll definitely be able to get onto a buccal swab straight away and send that off for testing. And the scientists told us that the bone belongs to someone who's aged around 14. So the scientists um, told us that with the test that they've done on the bone that it belongs to a boy, Australian or Caucasian. We know it doesn't come from someone born overseas, unlikely to be Aboriginal. And now we've got two people that match that description, both of whom bodies were never located and are somewhere in the Brisbane water. Yeah, and you imagine the trauma involved in that because with Donald Maxwell Montgomery, his grandparents were on the shore watching their son and grandson perish. Donald's younger brother was left without parents his mother had died earlier in in childbirth actually with him so and then you have Roy Inman whose mother and this she, the trauma she and the guilt she must have lived with because she was warned about the shark there was a bull shark in the area some for some days before that and she was warned and she's someone else said oh don't worry about it it's okay and the kids are swimming there as you say and one more fancy dive mum and straight into the into the mouth of a bull shark and that's the end of it so and the fascinating thing that I think also makes it this 50-50 is we discovered that peat, dense organic matter that is there present in all these inlets when you go up the New South Wales coast, on either side of this very large peat field, you find these two incidents. So at this stage, it's equally possible. But what I think is fascinating and I think is noteworthy is the testing that's being done is unprecedented. This case has actually taken that forward into a new kind of testing. That's right. Um, look, that's really exciting for us and especially for the police scientists here that this new testing can be very conclusive with the results because we do have that bone. And and like you said, with that, Pete, it seems that even though our initial inquiries from the scientists 
with the coronial people were that the bone was probably only 10 years old. It now seems that the bone was probably well protected um, at the bottom of the floor of the uh, the river there in all that peat and, and it's blackened because it was in the bottom of the river with all that peat as well. Right. And preserved. And, you know, and that was the question we kept asking. Okay, it's 10 years old, but why is it black? And now we know, I think we know, and I think, I'm hoping that if there is a conclusive match, that there might be some cursory search in that area for other remains. Uh, we can see if the Marine Area Command wants to get involved. No promises, no guarantees, <laughs> but I think it's, it is important to collect as many remains as possible. That's part of the charter of, of how these things are done. Well, absolutely. But, you know, and time permitting with that as well. But I think hopefully it's going to be one of these two boys. And eventually, over time, one would assume that more bones may surface. And with all this work now being done and for us to be able to conclusively know that that bone belongs to that person, when another bone comes up, then we'll definitely be able to put forward that it would belong to person A, and if it's not person A, it's most likely person B. I think what this really brings home to me is that this kind of police work is a team game. On television, it's always one CSI dude and he rushes around and solves the whole case within 42 minutes of the commercial hour. But what you see here is this, this success, if that's what it is, has many mothers and fathers. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, I studied the CSI effect for my doctorate, but um, that's a very unrealistic expectation that members of the public and some police do have that things can be solved so quickly, but it is a very painstaking process. And I know even you yourself, Adam, are a little bit frustrated by how long these things take, but I think it's important to be thorough and it's important to just tick off bit by bit so that we don't waste other people's times because whilst we're trying to resolve um, probably a historical missing persons case we've we've got to not forget that at the same time there are pressures on laboratories to solve current crimes as well. Indeed I've learnt patience or sort of through this but I think you always forget uh, the delays and so forth. And I think it's also really important. I think something I've learned as a journalist in this situation is we in the media tend to go on to the most likely and put that out there and it's, you know, it either rises or falls as truth. But police, it's a different assignment. You're dealing with families, you're dealing with long-held memories, often traumatic. So this has to be done properly and that's how it's being done. Well, yeah, that's right. And at the end of the day, this bone may be the only thing that is found of this person and they can lay them to rest and whilst they may be able to accept that this person drowned it still was a person who was alive once upon a time and if it is Donald well Donald's parents um, we've found their grave in Rookwood Cemetery and we'll be able to lay them to rest and add his name to the gravestone at Rookwood and I think that's really important. Okay now a question I've asked you many times over the last three years how long when Let's hope we get the result before you become an assistant commissioner. Or or retired, Adam. (laughs) Good on you. I'm older than you, so it'll be closer for me. But thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks, Adam. If anyone wants to to refresh themselves on the earlier episodes, they're there in season one. It is truly fascinating. It also, it's an encouragement to people out there. If you are missing someone in your family, 
it's worth getting involved in the pop-up familial DNA collection sites that the Missing Persons Registry does from time to time. We'll give you some details about that in the coming weeks. But the answers are out there, and I think this case demonstrates you, you keep working at it and you can get a result. So thank you once again, Donna, for your time again today and your, and your efforts. My pleasure. I'm here at Horsefield Bay, which is about two kilometres from Woi Woi, a couple of kilometres also from Etalong Beach, where Donald Maxwell Montgomery was uh, lost. Horsefield Bay was the scene of a shark attack in 1934, as we know, where Roy Inman, a 14-year-old boy, was taken by a bull shark. But there's no guarantees at the moment, and uh, the DNA will, will tell the tale in a few weeks' time. It could be Donald, it could be Roy, or it could be somebody else. That's the nature of these things. Um, this is an uncertain business, but um, we shall see. And I've said that a few times, haven't I? But stick with me. This will end one day. My money's on Donald Montgomery still. Yeah, I've been wrong before on this one, haven't I? As we go to air, the mystery continues. I've contacted Roy's living relatives, and they're prepared to do a buccal swab to match against the DNA profile created from the Yamina jawbone. We'll bring you the definitive answer when it comes to hand. In a moment, we go to the New South Wales Police Force Academy. But now, a message from our sponsor. Police Bank's award-winning unsecured personal loan offers competitive, variable and fixed rate options, all designed to be tailored to suit your needs and budget. From the latest in big-ticket electronics, white goods and household items, to holidays, cars, boats and bikes, Police Bank will assist you to find the best applicable rate on your personal loan. This segment is sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. The New South Wales Police Academy is a hybrid institution, a police training facility and a university rolled into one. In fact, a number of the staff who teach the Bachelor of Policing at Charles Sturt University are former police themselves. They understand how to equip their students for the moment they hit the streets as probationary constables. My name is Carla Tomadini. I am a lecturer at Charles Sturt University at the School of Policing in Goulburn. I used to be a police officer. I was a police officer for 22 years, joining back in 1985. And this is my story. What was it like learning to become a, a police officer back then? Well, it was a lot quicker. I often take a little bit of joy in telling my students that I was one of the first classes through Goulburn at that time. Previously, they were going through Redfern and we spent 12 weeks at Goulburn and then they handed our gun, our handcuffs and said, off you go, do your best. <laughs> so let's look at what the partnership between CSU and police brings to the table for these recruits as they move through the stages, what they're required to know to become that probationary constable that you deal with. Okay, so after they do all their preliminary entry requirements, they start their course. And the first part of the course is an online 
version. So they get to do it from home. And it's also self-directed now. So they also get the opportunity to continue in their employment and study as they go. So what we introduce them to is we have core policing capabilities. So that's a subject. So we teach them about what it means to be a police officer and what are your basic roles. And then we go into, we start to look at law and policy and how that affects the work they do. And then we go into some investigative type techniques and procedures and what they'll need in their employment. They do that for about 16 weeks and they have several assessments while they're doing that course. And after they pass that, that's when they come down to Goulburn and they spend 16 weeks reinforcing everything they'd learned in those first 16 weeks, but also getting more into the practical side. So they'll learn to use a firearm, learn how to use other defensive tactics, physical stuff, you know, use their taser, their capsicum spray, handcuffing, things like that. So there is still the academic component. They're still building on their law, policy, investigative procedures, but they're also doing a lot of uh, operational police practical duties. And we've also got a uh, practical village down there. So they get to act out roles that police undertake and learn while they're doing that. Rossiville, the most lawless town in New South Wales. (laughs) Yes, everything happens in Rossiville, but only to a certain extent. The so-called criminals at Rossiville are very compliant in the end, so that's good. (laughs) Now, there's two streams going on here. At the Police Academy, it's about learning you are joining a hierarchical, command-driven structure that you must learn to work within that as a group member. But the aim of tertiary education is to learn to think for yourself. And that quality is required as a police officer and particularly as a detective, as you know, how does the tertiary element make better police officers at the end of the day? I think that the tertiary element, or even though I didn't go through the tertiary element, I have done a lot of tertiary education. So I know what it involves. I know what we're trying to get out of it. And I think it's beneficial for police officers because it actually teaches them to think for themselves, as you said, but to think critically. So to assess each situation they go through, to weigh up the options, to gather evidence, to question what's in front of them, not always accept the facts as they are. I mean, the trouble with nowadays is a lot of things are in uh, social media, instantaneous. So people accept facts at face value. And that's not what you can do in policing. You must go deeper, question, etc. And I think having that academic background, it teaches our students to really engage with that and to use it to the benefit of uh, the community in general. And you're right, critical thinking, because decisions you make in a split second will be dissected in slow motion in the coroner's court and other courts, the Daily Telegraph. That's right. And so by having the course spaced the way it is, so we have that first eight months, nearly 12 months, as a learning, as a police student. But then we have another additional 
eight to 12 months where they're wearing the uniform, they're doing the job and they're gathering their skills as well. The Associate Diploma in Policing Practice is actually a two-year course. And we give them that first year as a student and the second year in uniform. So they get to build on what they've learned and also continuing the course while they're out in the field. They're putting theory together with practice, which is a big connection. An example of that is um, police discretionary power. It's, it's huge. It's what police use every day in most decisions they make. And they learn about that concept at the academy, but until they're out in the field, they don't really understand it in practice and what it means. Because I think also, probably in years past more, people said, I don't like school. I don't want to do a trade. I might join the police. But this level of academic requirement is onerous for some people and the academy. I think that we have developed the course in a way that there's a lot of support services for those people who may find it a a little bit difficult or a little bit intimidated by the idea of academic study. And I think that the connection between the actual work and that academic theory makes it different. It's one of the few academic courses that you sign up to and If you pass all your assessments and you do your work, you have a job guaranteed at the end of it. And so we make that connection, like that academic study is relevant to what they're going to be doing out on the street. I was a school leaver and joining the police, so I didn't have a whole lot of work-life experience. I went through the academy with a lot of people who weren't interested in academic qualifications, and as you said, they joined the police because they didn't want to study. I still believe they would have benefited from the way we do things now, as I know I would have, being a school leaver. In your long and successful career as a detective, Were there some skills that you can see today that comes from CSU that you could have used back in those days? I think the ability to locate, and and this is probably reflective of modern society as well, but the ability to locate information and especially in terms of the law and how to use it at short notice. Like one of the skills we do teach our students is how to research, how to find things. And some of that's instantaneous. Some of that's as easy as on your phone. There was a lot of times that I spent in a station or out on the street discussing what to do. We sort of thought we were doing the right thing, but we weren't 100% sure. But now we have access to that information instantaneously. But I also think um, problem solving is another thing. I think that uh, we teach them how to break things down. In policing, every time you go to an incident, it's always different. There's always a variable that wasn't there before. So just because we might teach them something about domestic violence, it doesn't mean we teach them everything. We make them aware that there are variables. Every state police force has a recruitment problem. That's just a part of the territory at the moment. They're all trying to get 1,000 plus new officers into the job. But the hidden problem is the retention question. People leaving after a few years, a big investment by the state and the police force to get them to a certain point they leave off. But is there an element now of, of introducing the students to the vocational opportunities and the alternatives they'll have in their police career, but doing it earlier? 
so they can now start to build a life around their career. Nowadays, your first station, you're required to stay there for three years. That's the commitment you give. But after that, you can start to develop your career. Now, I was lucky enough to go into plain clothes, investigative work, a detective. After three years, I went relatively early and that was my vocation. But now you could go for three years in general duties. You could become a detective. But then you could also take a right-hand turn and become a police prosecutor at some stage. And I think personally... That is one of the best things about the policing is there are so many varied positions that you can do within our organisation and you aren't limited. You need to be keen, you need to be open-minded, you need to be courageous in some way and you need to work hard. And what we're finding also, I know we do have people leaving, but we also have people after a short time leaving returning. Because after they have that experience elsewhere, they also realise the benefits that they may not have seen first time around and they come back. For example, we had a the sergeant set that I work with. He came back as a CSU lecturer. He'd left the police. He'd done a number of government jobs. He came back as a CSU lecturer and then he rejoined the police. You coming back? You going to join? I've been gone for a little while longer than that, so I don't know. But I'm very happy in what I do. But, you know, it's funny. People do say, when are you coming back, Carla? But I think my time is done. But that's an option as well, and I think it's a good one. That's detective-turned-academic lecturer Carla Tomadini of Charles Sturt University. If you want more information about the Bachelor of Policing, go to www.study.csu. This segment was sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Next week on Inside the New South Wales Police Force, the curious case of the changeling con artist, Samantha as a party. I've often described Samantha as a party's enterprises as being overlaid spiderwebs. If you imagine a number of spiderwebs that overlay each other, and helping First Nations recruits find home at the Police Academy. We have this strong warrior within us, and that strong warrior wants to defend and represent and support and add value to not only our families, but also our community. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, search Police Bank inside New South Wales Police. Alternatively, speak to one of the Police Bank team on 131 728. Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast is produced by Piccolo Podcasts and Media Productions. Host Adam Shan, producers Andrew Mensel and Courtney Besgrove. For New South Wales Police, Amy Hosking, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Sergeant Megan Knight and Senior Constable Ash Bold. Original music by Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band.